0: welcome to santa barbara talks this is josh molina and i'm here on this incredibly beautiful sunny day with the incomparable jeff green one of the most beloved people in the community you're like throwing a no-hitter jeff for decades you're just (laughs) knocking them out of the park and i'm here to talk to him about his role at the santa barbara city college foundation and my first question jeff is with all the salons closed how do you keep your dome looking so good?
1: Uh, you know, practice, practice, Josh. <laughs> I had I had twenty-five years of this before this happened, so that was that was worth something. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for the, the invitation and the and the nice setup here. Um, yeah, I'm I'm doing fairly quite well con- considering. All things considered, is how I start most sentences these days. So
0: good. Well, Jeff, I wanted to talk to you because I was struck at the amount of grant money that the City College Foundation was able to give to City College students. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of talk about how that came to be, um, how many students you served, how much money it was in total, and what sort of impact do you think that has on the lives of students during this time?
1: So we just finished our, so we did a four-week grant cycle, essentially, and um, I think the best way to describe it is we, the, the foundation has been in a period of trying to sort of stabilize its financial position, uh, get really clear and focused on what we're here to do. For many, you know, we're one of the older community college foundations in the country, so we were founded in 1976. Um, a lot of philanthropy didn't really get going in community colleges until the 1990s. Uh, and even nowadays, there's a lot of community colleges that really don't have a fully functioning foundation or philanthropic arm. They have, they might have, I mean, they might have a foundation that has been incorporated on paper. They may or may not have staff for it. Uh, some of those staff are not professional in the philanthropy fin- fundraising world. Uh, so we're very fortunate because we have this this history now coming up on well nearly 50 years, um, and there was a lot of foresight that, that went into that from some of our founders. And so we are in a position where we have, compared to our, our peers, a pretty robust system. Uh, you know, I have a staff of, of me plus 12, so our, our foundation has 13 full-time staff members. Uh, and we had been building some cash reserves to stabilize our ability to operate. We're independent of the college, so we're... Uh, we raise our money to operate as well as all our program money every year, and we don't have an endowment for that. So we, we have a lot of endowed funds, but those are set up for very, very specific scholarships and, and other programs. So when this all hit, we uh, we were in a strong position because we had a considerable reserve. Uh, and I have to say, my philosophy in all these years of, of working in philanthropy of various kinds is that the, really the moral obligation of a, of a public philanthropy like ours uh, is to put those dollars to work when and where they're needed. And I, I know there's there's a lot to be said for a more conservative, general perspective on how you manage uh, a philanthropic budget. And of course, we do that on a day-to-day basis. But when, it, when a moment like this hits, it's clear that this is the time to, to deploy those dollars. So when, uh, when the stay-at-home, well, actually the college, as, as we you know, thinking back a month slash 10 years, it seems, uh, we all were, we, we made the decision, the college made the decision to go remote um, on the late afternoon of Friday the 13th yeah. so that we knew that that next week was going to be all stay, work from home, get set up. Uh, the following week was spring break. And then we would see what happened afterward. So we use that time to look quickly at what we had available. Um, we've always had emergency grant programs. And we knew that this was big because by the middle of that next week, the week of March 16th, I had already personally heard of layoffs in the hundreds um, from business owners that I work with. I currently also serve with the Chamber of Commerce for, the, for Santa Barbara. So uh, I've been spending a lot of time with small business owners in the community. And they were quick to say this is what we had to do. It was mostly the restaurants, you know, the hourly workers at restaurants and, and uh, hospitality of various types, the hotels, the, the places that, that really drive a lot of the downtown economy. And it's also a place where a lot of our students are employed. So it, it was not hard to see pretty quickly that there would be this massive wave of unemployment for students that are already at the margins. And that's when we got to work. We just scrambled to figure out what we could do. Uh, we were in the position of not having to wait to fundraise first. So what we did is we deployed resources that were already in hand. Uh, and then about a week later, we launched a softer fundraising campaign within the inner circle of our donor base. Uh, but we were very committed from the beginning that we were going to move the money that, that we felt we could afford to move. And we were going to do it really quickly, like a three-day turnaround was the original idea. Um, and certainly there have been some hiccups in that. We tried to have just a really responsive uh, grant-making program.
0: So. so what did a student have to do to qualify for these funds, and how much did you end up giving out?
1: Well, as of today, so we closed the cycle, essentially, last night. Yeah. So we are now at the end of that four-week period, those four, four weeks of, of, you know, Monday through Friday weeks. And there's a couple of things that, that go into that. But essentially, the rough numbers are 2,300 student requests uh, and about $2 million wow. moved. The, the grants were up to $1,000 for each individual, you could only ask once, so it was a one-time, $1,000 grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the philo- I mean, a lot of the philosophy behind this, and I, I really uh, have tried to work with my colleagues in the bigger philanthropic world here in, in our region and, and around the state as well, that there's a moment where philanthropy is particularly valuable, and that's, that's yesterday, first of all, and right now. <laughs> I mean, the, I say this a lot, but, but the, that dollar is most valuable yesterday. Second best is today, and then tomorrow it's slightly less valuable. So as people were waiting for the public supports to come online, uh, that's the time for philanthropy to step in, in my, in my opinion. And so a lot of folks were waiting and seeing, and I, I get the instinct to wait and see, but unfortunately, for the, from the perspective of the person that needs that help today, uh, the waiting and seeing doesn't help them. So we now know that the stimulus checks have started to be delivered from the CARES Act uh, to qualified individuals, and of course that's not everybody. Uh, the unemployment insurance system is, I mean, the, the unemployment offices in every state are overwhelmed right now, so those, they are moving, but they're moving much slower than, than some people would, would hope. Uh, and then we had the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program, and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, which were both funded out of the CARES Act, and you know that money went within days starting on the, uh, the 3rd of April. Uh, so there were there were a lot of things coming down the, the pike, but, but we also knew that was going to take time. So that's why we chose to do what we did. We wanted to fill the gap between the sudden wave of unemployment and the next opportunity for stability. And that has proven to be about a month between that first wave and now. Uh, the students that we're targeting uh, with these dollars are really anyone that suffered from the pandemic, either directly by loss of wages, which is what thousands of students have experienced now, um, and or those that were already working multiple jobs, as you know, many of our students do, and they were still just getting by, and then suddenly they have to transition all their classes to online and so that takes a pretty good wi-fi connection and not everybody has that Uh, certainly you need to have your your chromebook or computer or something some device Uh, the college was quick to lend those that that's been really valuable Uh, they also went and purchased in bulk hotspots for students that needed that so that's been valuable so the the college jumped in pretty quickly with equipment as well Uh, but for some students that the need was really cash and that's what we could
0: do. Did they have to fill out an extensive application, or how, how did you decide how much people were to receive?
1: Yeah, great question. And, and in an emergency grant situation, that's sometimes the hardest part, because you have to balance your fiscal responsibility with moving quickly, and how do you do that? Um, so I can say we put together a four-member emergency grants team instantly, and that's, again, the benefit of having a full-time staff of 13. I had four, four of my colleagues who we immediately turned into a, a grants team. Uh, we put together over, it was actually over the spring break week. So that first week, we kind of figured out what we could do, and then we used the week of spring break to construct it and set it up. And we launched it Monday, March 30th. That was the Monday that students were coming back from spring break. Uh, and it was a very simple three-page document. The first page was simply name, kingdom, you know, student ID, uh, and what you need. Uh, just check boxes of what kind of needs. The second page was a short paragraph about uh, you know what's happened in your, in your life. What's your situation? plus uh, some basic details on what's the best way to get you resources. And the third page was a page of resources that we offered. We wanted to make sure that anyone that was asking also had a really current list of available resources. And there are other emergency funds in the community. Uh, When we launched, they weren't yet distributing money, but they were starting to take um, applications or interest interest forms in. And, uh, And we guided people through the state system as well. We said, here's how you apply for unemployment insurance. So we wanted to make sure they had the whole map. Um, we made our decisions based on what they said they needed, uh, and we did ask them to give us a number, so we didn't do one-size-fits-all. There, there is an argument for a one-size-fits-all emergency grant system. It's certainly more efficient if you just say $500 to everybody, and that's what the College Futures uh, Foundation did that you may have heard. The, the, I think it was $5 million, although others have said less, but that was made available statewide, and then it was gone within hours. You can also do it, uh, however, up to, and that we decided an up to was better because students, in our experience, you know, working the promise, um, the emergency grants that we normally do, students are pretty clear about what they need, and they'll tell you what what the number is. So we got we got requests from two hundred and fifty dollars up to a thousand dollars, and some students told us their need was far beyond that, and they and then they asked for the maximum that we could get, which was thousand dollars. And again, we know that a thousand dollars doesn't Solve a problem in any permanent sense, but it'll make sure you, you can pay your rent, you can eat for the next few weeks, you can get your supplies, you can stay enrolled ideally. Because the, the goal for us, being a college foundation, is we want students to stay enrolled if at all possible. Because we know that if once a student drops out, it's harder, I mean, the chances that they're going to come back and complete drop. Um, so that's what we did. And we reviewed it and actually had uh, two members of my team that basically spent the entire last four weeks just contacting students that applied. And if there was anything unclear, we asked them a few questions. Uh, we, and we did it both ways. Some students asked for the max and we, we didn't see that they had made a, a clear statement of what the, the need was and we would ask them for details. Um, and they, we had others that clearly asked for only the bare minimum, and their situation as they described it suggested to us that they probably needed more. Mm. So we adjusted up and down, yeah. both cases. The average grant size ended up being about $880 wow. when all was said and done. And uh, yeah, so times 2,300, it's, it's going to be about 2 million when all is said and done. And we, we're still processing the last few hundred grants right now, yeah. but we've gotten over 1,900 out the door already
0: wow. in just the first few weeks. You know, it's a really difficult time, even when you don't have a pandemic, or that spring break week. A lot of students, if they're sort of on the margins, in my experience, they never come back mm-hmm. after spring break. Thanksgiving is similar. Thanksgiving tends to fall a little bit closer toward the end of the semester at City College, certainly recently. But those periods where those students become disconnected from their campus or their mm-hmm. routine or their structure of classes are already difficult because they go back to wherever they came from and it becomes very difficult for them to re-engage. And with the pandemic, you know, I've sort of seen it in my classes, it's just the number of students who drop off or the number of students who just don't learn the same way through that online uh, learning platform. And it's so amazing that the college would be able to do what it can to help people students stay engaged in that learning process. I know there are some students I've talked to who are saying, I'm just going to take the fall off because it's so unpredictable. And why do I want to go through that again if there is a second surge? What's your take on what the pandemic is doing to students, particularly those at a community college who are here for a variety of reasons? But the community colleges really have an amazing impact on students who may not know exactly where they're headed yet, or maybe they do know where they're headed, but they've decided I'm going to save a ton of money and get the great ed- same education here. How is it impacting students on the ground? And do you think we're going to be able to pull out of this? Well, let me
1: say a few things first about City College. So I I, uh, I came here five, a little over five years ago to the foundation. Uh, I, had, I didn't know that much about SBCC. I mean, it was a Famous local institution. It had long been lauded as one of the great, greatest in the country. I knew all of that. Uh, I'd forgotten. I actually taught an SBCC course years ago, uh, probably fifteen years ago now. I taught a course on homelessness and housing policy through adult ed, back in the olden days.
0: Wow, that was a
1: cool um, class. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was one of my passions, and I, I found a faculty member at UCSB actually, a, a graduate student, and I got put it together, and we taught it at the Marjorie Luke Theater. Oh, cool. um, I, uh, I'd taken a Spanish class. So I'd forgotten that too. i thought, like, wait a minute, I do have a little bit of experience. And I had a roommate when I was at UCSB as an undergrad who was a city college student. He was from Longpoke and he'd moved down to go to city college. So I had these little touch points over, you know, 25, almost 30 years. Um, but, but I want to say this. Th- this school is, is what it's cracked up to be. I mean, I think its reputation is well-earned. I think everybody, for the most part, that I have met here is absolutely focused on helping students get their education. Uh, and the you know the results speak for themselves. And I my favorite story about City College, really my only experience early in my time in Santa Barbara, when I was in upper division, I was in my first upper division honors course as a biology major at UCSB. So this would have been 1993 probably, and um, there was only 12 of us, and it was a plant taxonomy course. So the wonkiest of wonky subjects, and I loved it. I still love that stuff. And uh, I had, there were six of us that were straight out of high school college students like me, and six that were city college transfers. And it did not take long for me to realize that the six city college transfers were light years ahead of the rest of us, as far as what they knew, how well versed they were in the basics. Uh, And so that was, that was really, that still sticks with me. And I tell that story a lot as my first impression of city college. So I will say that there are a lot of people here committed to helping students, yourself included, and and you see it every day and how they they reach out. Uh, That said, it does serve everybody, and it serves the the honor student who was the valedictorian who's going to spend a few years here and get some prereqs done and do it inexpensively and then go on to anywhere they want. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, it serves that student that barely made it through high school uh, that has no idea what they want to do, but they some somewhere in them they know or somebody has supported them to understand that, that a college education is worth it. So that's, that's, the, ba- that's the challenge of the community college is you serve all of those folks. And how do you, you know, you have to meet people where they're at. And where they're at is everything from one end of the spectrum to the other. Uh, the other thing I'll say about City College is the economic reality of this community, and it, I constantly have to rail <laughs> on this when I talk to, uh, well, especially when I talk to journalists from out of the area who are doing stories on City Colleges, because I'll get a call about this statewide program. And the the underlying assumption is everybody in Santa Barbara's wealthy. It's a wealthy community, it's beautiful, uh, and they just don't understand that you know we have one of the steepest wealth poverty curves in the nation, if you look at the state of California, you know there's all kinds of data from the, the, the budget project that show that you know we're the third highest in child poverty if you take the whole county together. I mean, there's lots of realities here. Uh, a huge part of our economy is very low wage, and a lot of our students work in that economy. So when the pandemic hit, and I realize this is a long way to get to your question, but when the pandemic hit, we had students that were, you have historically low unemployment, AKA high employment. But if you look at the structure of that employment, it is not what it was a generation ago. These are temporary, hourly, low-wage, part-time jobs. Yeah. And they're overwhelmingly in our downtown service and tourism sectors, hospitality, and such. And so that's what got hit first. And that's what a huge proportion of our students rely on. And so in, if you're already having challenges and you're already working just to keep... Even keep your head above water. To have something like that happen, where your your some or all of your wages are wiped out, uh, it's huge. And and I think that's the first, and to this day, that's the most concerning, uh, Im- the greatest concern I have about impacts from the from the pandemic. Because if you're then also a student, the easiest answer is to put anything non-essential aside. And for many students, they're going to say, look, I have if they have a family, if they have to, you know, obviously eat have a place to live. Uh, if they do have another job, that, that all comes first. Education is somewhere down the list. And once they leave, as you stated, uh, we know there's there's years and years of data that uh, the chances that they'll complete or that they'll come back drop. So that's my big concern, is, is how many students will we lose because of this? Because it was just the last little push that made them say, I can't do all of this. I can't take it all on right now. And that's why I think the emergency grants immediately are helpful. That's why I think what the college did uh, with Access to equipment and technology is really helpful. Uh, that's why I think the, the relatively smooth uh, adjustment to online learning, I mean, that, that's a massive project. You know you had to do it. Uh, people don't realize that, that most subjects are, don't lend themselves to a sudden shift to remote learning. And frankly, most teachers were not taught that way. So any faculty member um, to just say, as of tomorrow, you're going online, that, that's a whole different reality. And so I think all that together, uh, those are my concerns. And I do believe that the economics and the basic employment problem is the big one, because that's going to have so many downstream effects. We're going to look at the Promise cohort. You know, We're now four years into the SBCC Promise, and those are local students who are being fully supported for their hard educational costs by the foundation. Uh, And so my hope is that they'll have a greater chance of hanging on uh, through this, but we don't know that. I know the. You know, I spent a lot of time with the college administration right now, and they're very concerned because international students, you know, out of various students, those those drop-offs are precipitous and they were immediate. Uh, and we don't think those are going to come back quickly. So it's going to depend much more on the local students and those um, that are you know closer and uh, and or don't have the economic stressors. And so I, I think it's a real time experiment. No, nobody really knows, but everybody's got their eye on that.
0: Let's talk about downtown and, and business. Mm-hmm. We're we're sort of at this point right now, a month in, where we're starting to see people call for an opening or a reopening of the economy uh, in stages. Mm-hmm. People have been devastated. Business owners have mm-hmm. been devastated by the, the closure. Who works at businesses, but all the people you just mentioned, you know, all those people in, in our society, students, as well as just service workers, what are your thoughts on sort of this nexus where you have obviously public health is number one, we need to save as many lives as we can, but then we have this sort of gradual impact and degradation of the business economy, and what is that going to look like in the long run if we don't reopen soon? What are your thoughts on sort of trying to please and sort of address everybody's needs during this time?
1: Well, I mean I don't think I have any any magic solutions that a lot of other people I work with uh, haven't already voiced um, you know I, like I said I, I, I do serve on the chamber board right now so I spend a lot of time on that side of the equation as of late the businesses people often if you're not in business it's a lot of folks don't realize how small and how thin the margins are for a lot of small business and of course you hear that in the I mean that's part of been part of the American Public political dialogue and economic dialogue forever Mm -hmm. Uh, but I know as I get a closer and closer view of that um, it's true and and so depending on the business and what their cash position is you know they can weather different amounts of interruption and disruption Uh, for many they can't and they don't have much there so you know a, a week out of business can can hurt two weeks more you know a month can close them down and we've already seen this in Santa Barbara I think as, as we're recording this, Cafeana just announced that they're not coming back. Um, yeah. That's that famous spot right across from the county administration building that everyone goes for coffee. Yeah. Um, I think we've already seen a number of downtown businesses um, say that, you know, he, here's how long I have before I, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, it's a really complex web because you you have to look you know upstream and downstream. So then there's the whole question of most business owners are renters or you know leasers from their for their property. They don't own the property in which they run their business. So what do those landlords that that own the property do? Um, they're different. You know there's relatively little public rulemaking and guidance on that. Um, there are you know state of California certainly has said that they're mandating that. Uh, People be lenient with rent and mortgage payments to a certain extent, but that doesn't mean they're forgiven. It just means they pile up, and then you have to pay them later. And so that's why these big public programs like the PPP and the EIDL loans were so important, uh, and why you know they've already been exhausted now twice. Essentially, uh, the the allocations from Congress those are the biggest ever. I mean, this this dwarfs any New Deal. Uh, spending if you if you look at it uh, in a long historical context and I think that's part of the challenge we have is we've never had a, a recession or an unemployment wave quite like this so you know the Great Depression you did see 25% unemployment ultimately but that took years right. to get to and it was highly visible because it was a much less technological society um, there were you know bread the famous bread lines made it very visible to anyone either you were living the reality or you could see it every day yeah. um, today it's not true you i mean a lot of it is hidden it's we you know we're working from home we're using technology uh we're being asked not to be out in public so the 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 struggles that people have are not nearly as visible uh the data certainly speaks volumes but data lags so we're only a month into this and so they're talking about unemployment i remember when the first numbers came out and and the economists on the national circuit were saying oh you know it was a two-point jump in unemployment and you know i was like many people shaking my head and said, no, it's a 20 point job. You just aren't seeing it yet. And I think that's what we're going to see. I think, you know, I think a 20 percent unemployment number is not unrealistic from all the data we've seen and the trends we've seen. Uh, what, 26 million new claims in the last four weeks. So that, you know, that's the macro. The micro for Santa Barbara is that we were already in the midst of this this very well, long-standing debate, but a kind of a new chapter of the downtown core. Um, huge vacancy rates for a couple of years there. They'd started to turn around in the last year and a half. Uh, the city did yet another report from a consultant, in this case the, the now famous Cosmont report. Yeah. Uh, the recommendations looked very much like the recommendations from the previous reports. Uh, I think the difference is that the city leadership, so the council, city administrator's office, uh, were, were seemingly in a, in a more open, willing place to make some real changes this time around. And I, I do want to give credit to to folks that they. I it feel it feels substantially different from me, from my perspective now than three years ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago, when some of the same critiques were made. The difference is you didn't have the visible vacancies in quite the same way. Uh, but of course, that's a cycle that's happened on State Street before. That's not a brand new thing. It's just that it's a long enough cycle that we don't always remember what it looked like. Um, then i think you have the the hiring of jason harris you know the city's first economic development manager who who started in the middle of the pandemic on april what march 30th i guess was his first day Uh, so you know there's there are signs of progress but but the business community has long said the city needs to be a better partner for downtown Santa Barbara. they need to they need to not be the obstacle and not be the entity that you have to fight against but rather the partner to help you develop your business in whatever ways appropriate so there's I don't I certainly don't come from the position that um, that the rules and regs are bad I mean you need that that's how how cities kind of maintain whatever a fair level playing field is supposed to look like whatever cultural and, and historical and physical aspects of the city that they want to preserve you do that by enshrining it into a you know, rulemaking process. Uh, the problem is it has seemed absolutely over the top and overwhelming uh, to a huge amount of business owners. So I, I think we have to listen to that and understand that that any one of those rules on its own can seem perfectly logical. But when you put it all together and when you don't develop a culture of partnership from your city offices that that have to basically approve those permits and, and move those through the process. Um, so if it starts to feel like you're you're up against a a challenger as opposed to a partner, uh, that's when businesses get frustrated. And that's what started to happen. And so I think the good news is the city leadership hears that. There's a willingness to make some changes. This pandemic wave and the sudden shock, the, the economic shock that followed the public health piece of it, may well be that extra push to get some changes made. The question is, is that going to be enough? Because the, the problem now is so much bigger. It's a structural, massive economic structural problem. And and I think that one of the challenges is that so much of our economy is a social economy. It's a, you know, if you, people go out and spend money to be with their friends, to see, be with family, to do events, to to experience the, the downtown Santa Barbara culture, um, and nightlife or daylife or weekend, whatever it may be. And I think all people... Or not, maybe all, but most people are going to be reluctant to be in dense social situations for a while, uh, and 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 they should be. That's that's a reasonable thing. The problem we have, I think, on top of all this, is that the science and the study of this particular virus is having to catch up real fast. Um, the central, um, you know, certainly the federal response has been a disaster. I mean, from any objective look, and so it's been it's been up to regional and state. Uh, authorities to figure out what to do. So the good news is, in California, we have some pretty responsive regional authorities that are ready to do what they can. And, of course, the state has the the, the wealth to, to do some big things. I mean, the, the fiscal conservatism of former Governor Jerry Brown and, and the legislature is now paying off huge dividends because everyone that was complaining that they were socking away too much money and not spending it <laughs> is now very thankful for a $32 billion reserve or whatever it may have been when we started this this uh, pandemic period, so. So I, I think there's a lot we can do, but, you know, until testing is clear, until we can identify who has it and what are the symptoms, until we can figure out, again, the science of what do you, what's really the best uh, advice. Is it, is it a mask always? Is it six feet? Is it restaurants at half capacity? All those things ultimately have an economic impact. And so a restaurant that was barely making it with its, its version of full capacity pre-pandemic, if it suddenly has to go to half the tables at twice the distance um, and a general reluctance of the local population to go out at all, it doesn't mean that restaurant can recover or survive because that income stream is going to look different. So I think all—I mean, this is—I can go on. There's a long list here, but but so much of that is yet to be determined, and this has happened so quickly that I think there there the good news is. So I always I'm an optimist, um, so I have to always go to the good news. The good news is there's a there is a very robust conversation happening um, between all the different sectors. I think our, our public health sector and our safety public safety folks and our county political leadership, uh, county and city, and our business leadership are all beginning to work together to figure out what this looks like. So yeah. there's working groups being set up right now at the city of Santa Barbara, at the county. Uh, of course, all of it is, is deferring to guidance from the state.
0: And so I, in the next few weeks, we'll we'll learn a lot more. It's my hope. You know, I joked at the beginning about you throwing a no-hitter. And what I mean <laughs> by that is, you know, I've been a reporter for 20 years now. and. Wow every time your name has ever come up it's always been he's great <laughs> he's amazing jeff green he knows everybody he's done so much and that's 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 true is that you know you're one of these people who's been so engaged in the community for a long time and people really respect you how is um, covid-19 impacting you just sort of as a as a as a person as a dad <laughs> uh, what do you, how's your life different because of this in terms of how you, how you do <laughs> things
1: uh well, first of all, that's very kind. I appreciate that. I've I certainly had the privilege of getting to do all things I care about for and, and making that somehow also be my my livelihood for 25 years. Um, yeah, I mean, we as as we were saying before, we started this. I you know I live downtown. Uh, my wife and I have two little ones, six and eight years old. Wow. Uh, so I have a kindergartner and a third grader. Uh, we love downtown living. So we've we were renters for many 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 years. In fact, I think we just we calculated that between the two of us. Over the course of about 20 years, uh, we've had 12 different addresses within, I think, five blocks of where we currently live. <laughs> so we were classic Santa Barbarians in that sense. So we like it downtown. And, and we have this little house, 850 square feet. Uh, we can walk or ride almost anywhere if we want to. So we, we love that. Now, at a time like this, <laughs> when you're suddenly confined to that 850 <laughs> square feet, um, you know, it's logistics. It's, uh, you know, the, our bedroom is also my office. The kids are, are both in school, they have great teachers, we love our school. Uh, their teachers are trying their best to give them tools. Uh, my wife has become a full-time teacher uh, for, two, for two different grades simultaneously. Yeah. So mm-hmm. most of the house is dedicated to that. I, I think for me personally, I feel very lucky. I, I don't, you know, I have a, I have a job uh, and a great one, and it's one that's relevant in this moment. Uh, and I have a great team of colleagues. Um, I'm not having to have conversations with people right now about laying them off or furloughing them. Um, knock on wood. That's, that's at least the current situation. Uh, you know, we, we have food, we have a roof that's not really in jeopardy for us in the, in the near term. So I, I feel very fortunate that way. We have a backyard so the kids can go run around, yeah. but yeah, I'm also a very social person and I'm, my normal is being out and about all of the time. So to not do that, uh, in some ways is a, is kind of a forced rest, which I have to admit, I am appreciating. I was, I think I've counted, I was slated to, you know, do my, I do a lot of the MCing and auctioneering in the, for the nonprofit community these days. And I do enjoy that. And there were, I think, 13 events on the calendar that ultimately were postponed or canceled yeah. um, through the spring that I was planning to, to be part of. So I, no, I, I feel it personally, sort of how I spend my hours. I have to say that um, I'm trying to figure out my new normal. I don't have it yet. Um, I love the house household work. I, I mean, I I love to build things in the backyard. I you know I built playhouse for the kids and a swing set, and I redid a section of fence last summer. And now I'm think, oh, I can all, I have all these. I'm supposed to build this brick wall to re, I have a retaining wall. Build. Garden beds we want to build. so so if I have time at home, there's a lot of things I would love to do. Um, But I I am still working full-time, and and that means um, trying to figure out how to do that in one place uh, like everybody. I mean, there's nothing particularly unique about my challenges in that sense. I'm just trying to figure out how to do it and do it well.
0: I have a six-year-old who's in kindergarten too, and Mm -hmm. so it's been really enlightening because I've been able to see (laughs) the classroom experience to some degree because she Zooms twice a day with the teacher. Twice a day? Yeah, she's got like the morning Zoom, and then she's got a afternoon zoom and then in the middle her teacher will upload various assignments and videos and then you know that's about uh, an hour of work or so but it's really interesting especially someone who teaches adults (laughs) seeing how somebody teaches six-year-olds it's been pretty uh, um, powerful to sort of and appreciate I appreciate what they have been able to do and so immediately my six-year-olds become really computer literate. Because mm-hmm. before, of course, you know they're occasionally on devices or an iPad or something. But the actual act of moving a mouse yeah. and they're they're reading. I think she's reading a lot faster because she's recognizing a lot more words. Um, you know, continue, record these buttons that she looks at every day in order to know the next step. And I or my wife are always there to in case she has a question. But she she has to lead it. She has to do it herself. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been really cool to watch that. my I have a 14-year-old who's in ninth grade, and uh, he's just pulled up in his room all day. So we're assuming he's doing all his work. <laughs> uh, the the high, I think the high school experience is a little different than yeah. the kindergartner. Uh, but we're in Galita Union School District, too. Uh-huh. So um, that's really worked out well. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed and I wanted to ask you about was the amount of time that I'm spending with my family and uh, the amount of re-engagement we're having, whether it's just board games or just dinner around the table, mm-hmm. talking, uh, it's been kind of uh, refreshing in that mm-hmm. sense, because before that, we're all sort of doing our own thing. We're all going to work, we're all going to school. And then of course, we come home and then we're, you know, we're eating and then back to homework or work. And, you know, it's just sort of like repeat every day. And then maybe on the weekend, there's a little more time to do stuff. But one of the things for me that's come out of all of this is sort of a reconnection to that family and reappreciation of the home life. I think you can probably appreciate this. Like before you have kids, you're 100 like focused on your partner and yourself. You know, it's like this is the life, right? And then you have kids, and you sort of forget about your partner a little bit, and everything's <laughs> triage the kids, right? Everyone's making everything's making sure the kids are safe, they're right. happy they're healthy, and you sort of have these different dynamics playing out in the household. Uh, you've got two little ones. So, you know, yeah. have, you, have you noticed anything like yes. that? You know, what's, what's your take? Yes, on yes, that? and yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's absolutely. I, I have more family time than I've had since they were born, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when they were each born, I had the privilege of taking time to, to be a new dad with each of them for a few months. But but since, I mean, in our current phase, the last few years, this is definitely more time I've had at home with them, uh, more family time in general for all of us. And the funny thing I noticed, though, is that my, because we figured out that my my office is now our bedroom, <laughs> I and it's a small, you know, it's a little 100-year-old downtown Santa Barbara House. So, you know, what is it, 10 by 12, or whatever that room is, and I'm there, I, that's where I sleep, and that's where I spend my days. And so, you know, 20 out of every 24 hours, I'm in this one little room. And when I, because of the Zoom culture that we've all created instantly, uh, you know, the door has to be closed, people have to be quiet. So although I'm in the house, I'm actually... You know, secluded in that little room for a massive part of each day, and I found myself at least some days feeling exactly like I felt if I had a long day out at work and I was coming home. And I was kind of exhausted, um, you know, in a different way from just being on Zoom for you know. There's days where I'm on Zoom six, seven out of 10, 12 hours. So that's that's a lot of time on a on the screen, and I don't do that here. I mean, t- typically I'm I do that. I have you know I have a lot of emails and time on the. The computer, but I also get to get out and about and have meetings and lunches and conversations outside. Uh, and of course, they don't have that now. So, so some things are different. Some it's just a different version of of what a workday looks like. Um, but you know, the commute is shorter. It's about six steps out the door. <laughs> and uh, and it's yeah, it is. It's great time. Uh, last night we had a water gun fight. Now, would I have wanted to engage in a water gun fight on that? You know, we have these nights that are 80, 90 <laughs> degrees and windy and sundowners like we've had these last few nights. And uh, you know, if I were at a regular work day and I'd come home, would I, I don't know if I would have been out there uh, winning water gun fights with my children. So yeah, it is, it is different. And, uh, and I, you know, in some sense, I'm grateful for all of it. I, like I said, I don't. We are very fortunate. The, the, the things that are happening to a huge number of people in the country right now are not happening to us. Uh, and so, you know, with that comes, again, the sort of the feeling of responsibility for those of us that have the tools and the resources to to do something productive for the larger community. We need to be doing that right now. Um, and if I, it has to be just from home, so be it. That's definitely been a, a shift.
0: Well, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate the conversation. Certainly. Uh, it's always my pleasure to talk to you. And again, you're doing amazing work Thank throughout you. the community Thank you. and you have been doing it for a long, long time. Thanks to Co Work and Please visit www.santabarbaratalks.com for more podcasts like this.